Hey, y'all, and welcome back. I'm so happy you're back with me. Um, today's guest is a close friend of mine, Mr. Aaron Durand. Aaron, I met uh, working for a mutual client that we worked for who works in this space as well, too. And um, I've been wanting to have Aaron on for a while because I've just had some really deep, incredible conversations with him. <clears throat> And like everyone else on the show, it's incredible to share time with someone and speak about a whole host of things facing human existence, human experience. And so we don't have one specific topic per se, but we get into a lot of different things from implicit bias to uh, self-fulfilling prophecy to how we just exist between each other um, in in this world and, and, you know, how we communicate, how we heal, um, from the media we consume to everything else. It's a really deep, heartfelt conversation. Uh, I really appreciate Aaron coming on. But before we get to the show, just want to remind everyone, if you're interested in working with me in a one-on-one setting, I'm still offering 10% discount if you purchase a four-pack of sessions, and you're always welcome to do a one-off session as well, too. And it, of course, if you want to uh, get to know me a little bit, ask questions, see if the fit's right, and um, you know, uh, just connect before you, you commit to anything, I always offer a 15-minute free Zoom consultation. You can set that up by going to the website, www.nicobarraza.com, and filling out the form, submitting that. Um, and then we'll get you booked either for the 15 minute session, a one-off session or, or a group of the four pack, what have you. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave us a five-star written review on Apple and a five-star review on Spotify. Pause it right now. It means a lot to me, y'all. Uh, it's really quick. If you haven't done it yet and you hear me speak about this every episode, um, just do it right now. It helps a ton if you can get that done for me. Uh, it's again, a free way to give back and you'd be surprised how much it actually helps out. Um, helps the show sort of reach more eyes, reach more ears, and uh, you know get more traction, get more engagement, and ultimately just support the show and and get this information and, and conversations out to more people and engage people in furthering the discussions we're having here as well too. Uh, also, if you see me share stuff on Instagram um, based on Start the Ego, Feed the Soul gear, stickers, cups, tumblers, uh, you know, coffee cups, all these different things, um, sweatshirts, hoodies, tank tops. There's a lot of people that have been buying the gear and, and thank you so much. It's it's such a cool thing to see people all over the world uh, rock some Star of the Ego, Feed the Soul gear. And so if you're interested in supporting the show that way, you can head over to my website, again, www.nicobarraza.com, head over to the store tab, check out all the stuff, order stuff for your friends, order stuff for yourself. And if you do, please tag me on Instagram, please share it on social media. Um, again, super humbling to see people rock the uh, gear from this, this little podcast we started, you know, over a year ago. So if you want to support the show that way, um, please do so. And it's not going to get into a long intro. I know you all have been waiting for a new episode. So without further ado, my friend, Aaron Durand. Aaron Duran, my man, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, you know, we've known each other for a year and a half, maybe a couple of years now. Um, no, about that. And uh, yeah, it, it was you know, it's just a blessing to be introduced to you through the long line of, you know, self-help, like counseling coaches uh, via Instagram and the internet. Um, because, you know, when I connect with people um, that think like you, I immediately kind of gravitate towards them and I want to kind of give everyone a little bit of, of a brief about like how I, you know, got to know you as we had some conversations, you know, working for a client of mine. And, and I just was always really, um, attracted to the way you think, you know, I think that like, it's, it's rare to find a human being that is looking for their blind spots so meticulously, you know, and you come with an arts background from the opera singing, but you're very scientific, very analytical, very well read, you know, um, and it just, you know, I've been a fan of how you th- how you think, and I think that having on your show and being able to riff and exchange some ideas and throw some stuff out there, uh, you know, just just an honor. So, first of all, thanks, my man, for coming on the show and sharing some time with me. That's that's high praise, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's yeah. a, it's an honor so, to be here. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that too. I, I it's always nice to to hear that back too. Um, you know, so we, we talked a little bit before, before we started recording about talking about bias and implicit bias, you know, and a lot of the things you share on your account, um, Halfway Monk uh, on, on Instagram is um, is really, I mean, it has to do with so many things, political, social, economical, but it really comes down to like us humans thinking that we have it all figured out to the point where 
we're not asking questions from another point of view anymore, right? And so it's like, I'm either like anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine or pro this or, or anti that. And, and, and whether it's religious bias or social bias or family influence, you know, a lot of us are so stuck in our ways, right? And, and then we think that like, we look around and we're like, God, why is my life so, um, unfulfilled or why do I feel so dissatisfied with who I am or the people I'm around? And I think a lot of that comes down to, Everyone is looking externally for shit to change and expecting that to improve their quality of life while undervaluing and underprioritizing looking inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a goodly portion of the issue. I don't think it's the entire issue, but I think that's a, good, okay. a goodly portion of it. What's missing from what I just said? What's the what's the absent piece of the issue? So when we talk about bias, we almost immediately go to I mean, let's say another word for bias is prejudice, prejudgment, mm-hmm. prejudicial behavior. Mm-hmm. When we think about prejudice or bias or anything like that, we immediately go straight to here. Mm-hmm. But how did you come by your prejudices? You came by them probably pretty easily. You came by them from somewhere. Were you born with them? Probably not. I would argue that you're not born prejudicial. Yeah. But there are circumstances around your birth, your parents, your culture, or lack thereof, that you grew up in, um, the way you got bullied in school, the way you got celebrated in school as the popular kid. Uh, There's all sorts of influences along the trajectory of your life that sort of, you know, drop bias on you like a cloud drops rain and suddenly you're wet Mm -hmm. and you're covered in, uh, you're covered in prejudices. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I think it's important. I think that's why I said it's a goodly part of the issue to head on in, head downstairs into your brain and figure out where those came from mm. and how you've contributed and perpetuated those biases. I don't have like a particular solution for what Certainly. you do when you go down those stairs, but right. it's one half outside you and one half inside you to maybe sum mm-hmm. it up. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. No, I, I agree with that. that. That makes sense to me logically. I think that the the harder part i would say is how do people get from sort of blind ignorance right just like okay what i know is what i know versus saying like think thinking about something with a a, a sort of mild sense of awareness to be like hey i i do have these internal external prejudices that were you know rained on me right if you will and and how do i you know investigate them so th- there's a the point of like okay i'm going to investigate them Versus how do I get to the realization that they even exist in the first place? Yeah, that I think involves, and this is something that like, you know, I, I had so much trouble with as a kid and I still do mm-hmm. is the desire to be right. Yeah. The desire to be the smartest person in the room, the coolest person in the room, the wisest person in the podcast sphere. Uh, there's this, and I get it, this temptation to be like the most right person you can be. And that becomes such a habitual thing in particularly, I can only speak for Western culture. I can only speak for the culture that I've been steeped in. Mm-hmm. It's such a big thing to be right. I got to be right. And so when you go like investigate your biases, you're going in looking for a right answer. You're like, oh, I, I must be this. I must be wrong. Maybe you're, maybe you're not about that bias. Maybe you're wrong about being wrong. Maybe you're wrong about being right. It, there's only one way to investigate and accept the fact that you might be wrong. You might be wrong about absolutely everything. You might know nothing. I think that's why um, in Zen, they're constantly talking about the great doubt. Mm-hmm which comes before realization. There's this feeling that 
like, who the hell am I? How can I possibly mm-hmm. know anything? And you live in that, you sit in that doubt, and you investigate that doubt, not with the objective of eliminating the doubt, but living with it. Absolutely. Which is not a, it's, like, know, it's not always a fun way to live, but, you know. No. It's very rich. No, it, absolutely. And, and, and I agree, it's not always a fun way to live, because sometimes it's, it's, it's quite sort of... Um, demotivating when you're like, wow, I, I realize yeah. how much I don't know and how much implicit bias I've been living through, right? Through that window. Yeah. You know, even, even, even in the terms of existing within the relationship within myself, how I view myself affects how I view others and how I view the relationship I'm in or the relationship I'm seeking, you know, the work I'm doing. And I think you brought up a really good point. Like, like the desire to be right, I think is, is directly sort of related to the brain's um, sort of predisposition towards security. You know, and that's what mm-hmm. separates sort of the brain from the mind, which is consciousness, right? It's like the brain, it's really designed for fight or flight, right? It's designed to keep us alive and keep us in a position of our ability to defend ourselves or to survive, right? It's kind of amylistic brain, right? And that's the brain. And then the mind, because we are sentient beings, the consciousness comes in and it can kind of make sense of the brain when the brain is sort of um, rampantly seeking false sense of security to make it more comfortable, right? And I think that directly relates to the addiction to be right is because a lot of times the addiction to be right is coming from, I just want to make myself feel secure because I'm worthy and because people will be like, okay, you know, so-and-so has their shit squared away, right? To use a, a military term, right? Yeah. This guy's squared yeah, away, yeah. right? Squared away, he's a man, you know? And I think, honestly, the most squared away individuals are the ones that are able to be like, I don't know the answer, but I am willing to make a decision and bear the consequences of the decision and learn from that decision versus my insecurity is going to force me into a complacent area of inaction. And then I become, cause, cause one of my struggles, I think growing into this frame of thought is like being like, well, I don't know. Therefore I won't do anything. I won't make a decision. I'll just wait. Mm-hmm. And, and that serves a purpose in some level. But you know, I think when it's a very important issue or when it's something that's um, you know very time sensitive in our lives, I think that a lot of people are really scared if they don't know to make a decision and bear the repercussion of the unknown. So instead they'll just act like they know. And I find that much more detrimental to the progression of humanity than saying, I don't know, but I think this is the best way forward. And if I go down that route and it doesn't work out, I have enough uh, integrity to say, Hey, you know, I was wrong. Time to go the other direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a lot at play. The, yeah. the lizard brain's evolutionary mm-hmm. drive to create security, create safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conscious mind's very, very profound ability to question everything. How do you balance those two? Like it's it's tough stuff, man. It's mm-hmm. and and we all do it. And like it kind of it reminds me of that Ben Franklin quote that I, I kind of sort of agree with, but not really like those who, what is it? I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to butcher this quote. Those who pursue security at the expense of freedom lose both. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's a little bit, I think life's a little bit more complicated than that. It's right. the delicate dance of standing for something and knowing what you know, but also reconciling yourself to the fact that there's always going to be insecurity. There's always going to be something that you just can't know. There's always unknown. The future at its best is an allegation. Mm -hmm. There's no, like what you do now in the present is the wake of what came before and that's it there's no future to speak of it hasn't happened Absolutely. so it's really uncomfortable to live with the fact that like there's no way you can know the unknown you don't know what you don't know is uh i think i don't know who said that babe ruth who the fuck knows <laughs> sounds, we'll never, maybe like- we'll never know <laughs> yeah maybe we'll never know it, yeah like it's it's a tough thing to con to to talk about because yeah you can't talk about what you don't know. Right. But if you don't admit that you don't know what you don't know, 
then you get like as you mentioned, you get you get stuck in the pursuit of being right and not being able to admit that you're wrong. Right. And like there's even more at play there, masculinity and yeah. and uh yeah. and a culture that a priori assumes that you have to get the right answer in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. Right. What if the wrong answer was actually the way forward? Yeah. What if not Absolutely. being able to answer the question is the right thing to have happen with that question? Right. Yeah. It, you know, what you just said kind of sparked this idea in my mind is that, you know, even in modern therapy and relationships, a lot of folks are like, well, we're, I'm searching for a relationship that is secure, you know, where I can build security in. And I think, you know, there, there's sort of a little bit of a, a duality in that in that like nothing is ever truly secure because even even the most best relationships someone could pass the next day some some tragedy could happen or or someone could have a change of heart and leave right and i think in, and, and i'm relating this to everything in in how we operate in the human existence is that it's less about security and more about evolution like i'm actually searching for things that are going to have my mind and my soul and my body evolve right and so there is going to be some inherent insecurity in that evolution where i do not feel fully like set in stone that's called growth exactly right like that's called growth and there's a difference growth, right? There's a difference between being in some chaos all the time and being in some dysfunctional relationship. I'm not speaking that. What I'm speaking towards is like, you know, it is okay to be uncomfortable and experience discomfort as a human being. And I think a lot of times, especially in modern society, we're so addicted to like, I have to pad myself. So, so I rarely show people who I am or I surround myself with all this shit material or I act a certain way on the internet and people value me as this caricature. And, you know, it's very much, we're sort of, um, we have this huge aversion to insecurity or to um, to discomfort. And in that aversion, we're actually avoiding working on our insecurities inside because that <laughs> that is that is interestingly enough, the insecurity sort of proliferation, right? Is that, yeah. well, I'm just going to avoid everything by sort of resembling or sort of building this facade of security, whether it be in a relationship or with my family or in work, you know, versus being able to understand that like, in the unknown, there is a gift in that, in that you can still learn and grow. If you knew everything, mm-hmm. you got nothing else to learn. And that sounds like a pretty boring life, right? Yeah, not, not very exciting, no. Not very exciting, no. And, and it kind of leads me to the, the thing, you know, you were talking about how, you know, it, it brought up this idea of like modern media and the role media plays in educating people, you know. I mean, you know, after we get past a certain age, if we're not voracious readers or we don't listen to a lot of things, we, you know, a lot of people consume their their um, education, if you will, via YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, you know, uh, news or something. And I found that, you know, specifically in the past five, six years in the US, like there's this polarization, this narrative of like, well, one side knows and is right and the other side knows and is right. And so there's very little talking going on, right? It's like, well, those Mm -hmm. people are morons. And then from the other side, well, those people are morons. And I find that to be really like it, it seems to be digressive, you know. Mm. Like, but do you think that's even avoidable? Because if if we disagree so morally with other folks, can there be a common ground met? Mm. Big questions here, Aaron. Yeah, I did. I mean, we were just talking about what if being unable to answer the question is the way right. forward with that question. Right. Absolutely. And to like to to be perfectly honest and to to live everything I've been pontificating about, I genuinely yeah. don't know, man. I genuinely don't know. This is at least it seems to me the natural uncomfortably so evolution of civilization. I agree. And that makes me sound kind of like a doomer, but... Like a nihilist, yeah. Like a nihilist, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, I have yet to find, and this is just my own pursuit, I have yet to find any civilization that that survives something like what we're experiencing now. I mean, you look at the... You can go way, way, way back. You can look at the Nazca. And you can look at what they did with their surroundings. 
they cut down all the trees that were retaining the microclimates and it destroyed the climate. There were all sorts of other interactive factors, of course, but that was a big one. And so their society disappeared and all that's left is the Nazca lines and some shattered clay pots. You look at Rome and you look at Marcus Aurelius with the Antonine Plague. There's a guy that sold loads of royal treasures. He sold his rings. He sold his villa. He sold this, that, and the other thing. He consulted with the greatest uh, uh, greatest healers of his time, like Galen, to try and like get Rome through this plague. And he did, but not without incredible consequence because it wasn't long after that if i'm getting my history correct correctly and i could be off on the timeline about this but it wasn't that long after that it was the battle of the teutoburg forest in uh, germania and they lost three legions and they lost one of their greatest generals to suicide and everything just kind of went from the outside and from the inside at the same time that's the biggest, that's the civilization that we're built on ideologically. That's the West. Absolutely. That's Rome. Yeah. It's gone now, man. Yeah. All that's left are these weird echoes in our head with words like, um, words that have Latin roots. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing up like the historical context of the cycles of humanity, because if you look at Egypt, Persia, you know, all these empires, right? Um, even, even the, you know, the dynasties in China, right? And, you know, they, they've always had a peak and then a decline. And, you know, at some point, I wonder if that's just inherently embedded in our DNA. But also the difference now is like the globalization of what is affected, you know, and I think the stakes mm-hmm. are higher, right? And so, Oh, yeah. at, at that time, and it, it's almost like maybe we, we were supposed to evolve naturally into this because this is how we figure it out. Because, you know, when we talk about generational trauma, for instance, when we look at the generation through the human scope on Earth, like at some point, something has to change in the cycle. And it's clear that like war hasn't changed it, you know, mm. politics hasn't fully changed it. Right. Um, and, and of course, we're still evolving. Right. Evolution doesn't stop. But you know, we're getting very, very esoteric here, which I love actually, but I'm just like, you know, at some point, what changes or are we going to be in this cycle for eternity until, you know, a cataclysm? Until time stops. Until time stops. Uh, yeah. Until Dr. Strange comes back. Exactly. Where is he, man? Doctor. <laughs> God, the last movie was so good. By the way, I thoroughly I haven't seen it yet. Don't don't ruin it for me. I won't. I won't spoil it. But it's good, man. <laughs> okay. That's good. I believe you. I believe you. Yeah, like, um, I think the thing that um, this entire conversation reminds me of actually is one of my favorite poems, um, and it's a it's called "Bushed" by a poet named Earl Burney, and in it. It's basically this cycle, but it's on the individual level. It's on a person level versus everything this man doesn't know and everything this man contends with while he uh, tries to make himself in the wilderness. Do you mind? Do you want me to read it? I can read it for you if you like. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like Love a it. super intriguing poem. Yeah, we're going to get esoteric and we're going to get we're going to get the poems out. What's next? Let's do it. All right. This this Earl Bernie, uh, the poem is bushed. He invented a rainbow, but lightning struck it, shattered it into the lake lap of a mountain so big his mind slowed when he looked at it. Now, there's your first indication that. This versus this, mm-hmm. what's going to lose? Mm-hmm. Yet, he built a shack on the shore, learned to roast porcupine belly and wore the quills on his hatband. Ingenuity, the indomitable human spirit. At first, he was out with the dawn, whether it was yellowed bright as wood columbine or was only a fuzzed moth and a flannel of storm great he's making it work 
But he found the mountain was clearly alive. Sent messages whizzing down every hot morning, boomed proclamations at noon, and spread out a white guard of goat before falling asleep on its feet at sundown. Which is to say, you know, the mountains and the land are going to do their own thing. When he tried his eyes on the lake, ospreys would fall like Valkyries choosing the cutthroat. He then took to waiting. Oh, he's, he's getting smarter now. He's just going to pause. Till the night smoke rose from the boil of the sunset. So now he's in the pursuit of the great doubt, right? Mm-hmm. He's waiting. He's going to wait till night falls. The, this, this world is too wild and too chaotic for him. He's in it and he's trying, but he's failing. He's tried ingenuity. Now he's trying the spirit. And here's where it gets uh, intense. Hmm. But the moon carved unknown totems out of the lakeshore. Owls in the bare dusky woods derided him. Moosehorn cedars circled his swamps and tossed their antlers up to the stars. Then he knew, he knew, though the mountain slept, the winds were shaping its peak to an arrowhead, poised. But by now, he could only bar himself in and wait for the great flint to come singing into his heart. Now that final, those final three lines, but by now he could only bar himself in and wait for the great flint to come singing into his heart. You know, I used to think that was about dying and I, I don't think it is. What do you think it's about now? I think it's about him shifting from a self-based identity mm-hmm. to place-based identity. Mm-hmm. That whole poem, this guy is going, I'm going to make it. It's all, it's all he did. He, he barred himself in. He waited. He made a porcupine. He roasted porcupine. He made a hat. He did all these things. Mm -hmm. And the mountain, in this case, the the metaphor for, like, you know, you can call it whatever, the land, the Tao, the Tathata, all -hmm. these things, is like, lol, no. That's not how this works, baby. Yep. And the winds shape themselves. They shape the mountain into an arrowhead. And he finally figures it out. He's like, oh, my God. I have to, I have to sit and wait for, I don't want to use the word claim, but yep. it's kind of like that. I have to wait for this land to dissolve any individualistic sense of myself. Mm. Because now I'm here. I belong to here it's a difference between being from somewhere and being of somewhere that's the crucial difference that i think most of us are missing and like if anything's gonna save civilization i think it's shifting from us thinking we're from somewhere to us being of here right and i think it's a bad shift in terms of convenience absolutely i think here needs to encompass the planet we live on and not the borders we live in between you know, I think is yep. the, is the other thing, you know, it's interesting. That poem reminds me, I wrote this poem when I was 22 in, in Chile, when I was living in Santiago and it's called the lake within the lake. And it's hey. really, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's really about, you know, uh, I mean, I honestly, I need to try to find it cause I, it's on my old computer. And if, if I do find it, I'll, I'll read it maybe before the show and people can refer back to it, but it, it really not as well written as that. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it's really about, you know, sort of, this this character jumping in the lake thinking that you know he's going to be in water and then he jumps through this lake and then on the other side he's standing on land and then he can there's an, there's another lake you know mm. and it's kind of just explaining that and, and it has to do with bias and it has to do with like you know how we see the world you know um and how we see ourselves how we operate in the world but you know there's a lot here right Aaron because there's like you know society and politics and family and religion and culture always you know impacts this and it's almost like 
with as much as we've evolved, whether it be technologically, medically, you know, um, uh, all these different ways, we're still playing the same game, you know, which is a finite, small-minded game of mm-hmm. sort of power or or money or um, or material, you know, whereas everyone's game ends in the same way, you die, you die right? Regardless of what you think happens after death energetically or, or however, whatever mm. religion you believe in, you're dead, you know, in this human, in the human life. And I feel like what you're speaking towards is, and what this poem is kind of resonating me with is like the idea that, well, my life is really about me getting everything I want versus collectively contributing to the progression of not only just this species, but the progression of the planet that we inhabit and mm-hmm. that, that, that mm-hmm. speaks to all life. Right. And I think that uh, it just seems like a lot of folks don't want to even listen to that narrative because they'd rather under the guise of God <laughs> or Allah or whatever, talk yeah. about, Hey, it's gotta be this way. Yeah. Right. Because being from somewhere gets you, it allows you to be me. It allows you to be the ego in a bag of skin, as Alan Watts would say. Absolutely. Being of somewhere means you are irrevocably limited in scope. There is nothing worse for a planet than a successful human being. Hmm. It's a, there's a bit to unpack in that statement, but I mean, broadly speaking, you want you want to like look what this success has brought us at the level of folks like Bezos. Mm. Well, I mean, if we if we talk about success, how we define it too is is I think where the issue is, right? It's like yeah. if our success is defined by monetary wealth or fame or social status, certainly seems like that probably. But if our yeah. success is defined for, as the collective progression of life on the planet. Mm-hmm. I would say it's probably different, you know? It is. But the thing is, is, yeah, is our success, right? Our success is mostly defined in in modern ways as money, looks, um, you know, status, material, whatever, right? Yeah. And those things are all finite. They, the, the, it's, it's a finite resource. It's gone after you leave, right? Even if it passes yeah. on to a couple generations after you. But rather the connection we build with other humans and with people not from the countries we're from, that don't speak the same languages from, I think those ripple out, you know, an echo in eternity as long as, you know, humanity subsists. And I think what people really fail to understand is that being alive is not only about you. Yeah. It's in the, it's in the word. If you go back etymologically, there's live. Okay. We all know what that means. You got a heartbeat, you know, you're blinking, you're drinking tea. Yep. Yerba mate in your case. Mm-hmm. And there's the ah at the, at the beginning of it. Now, the ah is an old English prefix, which is an intensifier. And it means roughly to be in and aware of whatever it's attached to. So to be alive means to be in and aware of what and how you're living. Mm-hmm. And it's the same. You mentioned consequences. And knock-on effects and after-effects, how these things ripple outwards from a thing slash event. We have the word awake. Now, awake, you know what awake means. I'm gonna. I'm totally stealing this from Stephen Jenkinson. So I yep, bless yep. him wherever he lies yep. right now. We have the word awake. Wake can mean what comes behind a ship, the consequence on water of a ship. We also have wake, as in what happens after you die. People get together and they talk about you. Mm-hmm. So wake is another form of saying consequence, knock-on effect, the wake of a thing. Now the ah, as we've learned, is to be in and aware of. So awake, what does awake mean? It doesn't mean sitting here in lotus position blissed out it doesn't mean running off to the ayahuasca camp 
It doesn't mean taking yet another 14 grams of mushrooms so you can talk to the machine <laughs> gods. I wish it did, man. I wish it did, because then things would be mm-hmm. so much simpler. Awake Absolutely. means to be in and aware of your consequences, intended or otherwise, on the world around you. That's what awake really means. Awake is borderline a paralytic agent. It's like a nerve gas almost. Because when you really think about it, you, you stop. You get, re- you get stilled, as it were. Because you're like, oh, holy shit. I, I affect so much. Right. To be really awake is to realize that you have all the powers of a god in terms of consequence, but also none of the fine-tuned control of gods. And so like, I don't, I like, I don't know, but I, I, I can only speak for myself, but like yeah. in the moments where I've experienced awakeness, mm-hmm. I've, I've like been almost unable to breathe because I'm like, oh my God, this is everything I do is just irrevocably and intimately connected with everything else. You know what gets and me to that like, point? Is the, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh um, no, it's all good. It's all good. You know what gets me to that point of you just because we, we live in a woke culture now, right? To, to, to use that term that everyone's like, well, you know, woke, right? I'm blissed out. I'm floating. And I think that in my mind, what, what really gets me to what you just described is thinking about death, like actually my death, whatever, whenever that mm. happens, right? Thinking about what it's going to feel like to take my last breath and whatever I'm looking at, whoever I'm looking at, if it's a sky, if it's a people I love, if it's, if it's, it's some foreign country that I don't speak the language of for some reason, right? Whatever, wherever this happens in the future, it's to think about that moment and to think about what it's like to leave, you know, because in the feeling of what it's like to leave, meaning that like, I probably won't be able to reach the people I love anymore. Right. And since some of them probably left before me, I will in that moment, I will be left with the reckoning of everything I've done in my life and what I've left behind. And mm. within that framework in my mind, it keeps me honest about what I'm doing right now. Because I think death is the ultimate teacher. Because if we didn't have death, if we had, if we were immortal, life would suck because it wouldn't be life, right? You wouldn't be alive. You, you, wouldn't, you, be would, you, would, you wouldn't be human. You would just literally live for, you know, eternal. And, and I think that people are so scared of death and I'm not saying to anyone like we shouldn't be, you know, it has, it has its purpose, but mm-hmm. we're so scared of it. We don't even talk or conceptualize about it. And that is a problem because it makes people think that like they are okay with what they're doing and how they're living because there's no consequence. Right. Especially if we're not like, explicitly hurting another or oppressing like we're just like well i'm not i'm not racist i'm not i'm not sexist i'm just living my life you know and i'm like i think as human beings we have an obligation to investigate what it means to die Mm. you know because in my mind like i've reached a point in my life where i don't want to die I really don't. I really love being alive now, you know, and I, and I, I didn't used to honestly, you know, but I'm also not scared of it. Right. I'm also not scared Mm -hmm. of it because I know it's going to come regardless of what I want. So instead of focusing on it, I'm using it as, let's say, uh, we can even use the term God, for example, right? It it feels like this internal empowerment inside of me. That's like, Hey, Hey bud, you're going to die. You know what you do today is what matters, right? Yeah. Because you could be gone tomorrow. And, and you know, I'm getting prophetic here, but I think if people really think about that, the way we talk to ourselves, the way we talk to others, the way we, we were so addicted to being right, sort of just kind of like relaxes a little bit, you know? And yeah. I'm able to step into, yeah. I'm able to step into more substance of being like, wait a minute, I don't give a shit if I'm right. I more mm. care about how I'm affecting others around me, how I'm contributing to change, 
how I'm holding space for those that are hurt or those that are oppressed and others and how I treat myself because ultimately those little ripples are what I leave behind. Not the shit I've accumulated, not the computer screen, not the shoes, not whatever. It really is the energy and where I focus my energy in life is what I leave behind. Yeah. There's lots you can do with your dying. Absolutely. But there is nothing that can be done by you with your death. Mm-hmm. You're not here anymore. You're gone. Yeah. Yeah. That is the great boulder in the lake and the ripples that out from that. Mm-hmm. Other people interpret the meaning of that. How you approach your inevitable demise, that's something that you have a fair bit of control over. And that's just another way of saying, be awake. To be in and aware of your consequences. But once you're gone, I mean, there's nothing else you can do. Right. By definition. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, you can get into talk about like legacy and stuff like that. and But when you really think about it, I mean, it's death. It's the ultimate unknown. It's the ultimate yep. uncertainty. It's the ultimate doubt. Because you can't, uh, you can't think of something that you haven't even obliquely experienced before. Yep. Like a lot of people think about death and they go, okay, when I die, it'll, just, it'll probably just feel like nothing. You, you don't know that. You won't be there to feel anything. You're, you're gone. So one time now you could say, depending on your religious beliefs, like maybe you're here, maybe you're a ghost in a canister. If you're like Pierce on community, uh, like, but your consequences will vastly outpace you. Mm -hmm. They, they outrun you now and you're still alive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how, how the hell are you going to control them after you're dead? It's the ultimate insecurity too in that regard. I was absolutely, I was going to bring that up. It's that, you know, how we view the process of dying, which we are already dying the moment you're born, you are dying, which is such an interesting thing to think about. Right. Um, is that you you really have two options in childhood and adulthood and all the way, you know, through the aging process. If, if we are lucky to make it that far is that our relationship with the idea of death, because that's most people's Fear, fear of mortality is usually at the root of a lot of things. It's where we feel pain. You know, we, we fear pain. We feel, you know, any, we fear anything. Right. And, and mm-hmm. it's really goes down to like, well, am I scared of death? Am I in fear of it? Or am I love lovingly like understanding that what I do now is more important than truly understanding what happens after the fact, but what matters is what I'm doing now. And so am I going to live my life with the preemptive fear of dying or being hurt or I'm going to live my life with the presence and embodiment of love, which t- to not to not go you know, so like whimsical here, but but it really is is that simple. You know, it's like if you are mm. acting out of love and you're building in that, that doesn't mean you let people walk all over. It doesn't mean you let people abuse you, but it means you have enough love to accept the people that are there and loving you. And you give back in the same way you meet them and to let go of the things that are not serving you and the people that are not, you know, and not that it's always totally. about servicing yourself, but I mean like hurting one, one another, you know, there's certain people, obviously people have been around that just are not healthy for them. And that's okay. You know, you can still say, yeah, I love, I love this person. I wish them the best, but I, I no longer will accept this treatment and vice versa. I love myself, but I no longer will accept the treatment I've been treating others with. Right. I'm going to change mm-hmm. this. You know, versus because if I'm you're scared dying, of the consequences. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Because if, if you're dying and you're human and you know this, then what are all these other people around you? They're human too, and they're dying too. That's why folks like Thomas Merton, the famous um, Anglican theologian, uh, he wrote a beautiful passage. I can't remember it fully off the top of my head, but he wrote a beautiful passage about walking down a street, I think in like Tennessee. And it suddenly hit him that he was walking amongst like the most incredible divine beings because he realized that all of these people were undergoing and going through the same 
experience on that level that he was. They all have their individual um, issues, their individual things. They've got their quote-unquote metaphorical taxes to pay. Hmm. But that's part of being awake is being aware that you don't just have consequence. Everybody else does too. And that there's no separating those. There's distinguishing and discerning, of course. Because like, you know, I have to know that a rock is a rock and a tree is a tree and a person is a person, of course. But underneath all of that, there's this this substrate of divinity, of give it whatever name you want. That's all headed towards the same thing, an ending. Yep, absolutely. And what does that make you do with what you do with your life? Knowing that everybody else is going to end too, and you don't know when, you probably have very little control over that. Right, right. You know, it, it brings this idea to my mind about, you know, our culture is obsessed with living forever, right? Like if Mm. you look at when people talk about age expectancy, well, since the 1930s, it's gone up 10, 20 years, right? And age expectancy somewhat keeps rising, right? At a baseline level. And in my mind, I'm like, what good is that if the lives we're living aren't becoming more enriched, right? And so I think this has a direct related relation to suicide, right? Because if, Mm. if our life expectancy is larger now, and there's so much more to experience based on technology and all these things we've created. Why is there way more suicide? Why is there way more depression? Why is there way more anxiety, right? We look at social media, we look at all these other things, we look at parenting, we look at, you know, societal pressures, the uh, like lack of acceptance for certain gender, certain sexes, all these things, right? And then we, we look at age and we're like, God, we're so, we would just want to live 90, 100, 110, 120. And I'm like, I don't. Like, <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather live a shorter life that's full where I've experienced mm. and expressed and connected to my deepest capacities than a long life that is empty, you know? And, and yeah. I think that it's, again, it's about reframing what we're focusing on. Well, I'm just focusing on living a long life, safety, fear, security. I just want to be alive. I just want to hold on to this little teddy bear, you know, versus like, I understand I will die at some point. And the choice might not be mine when that happens or how it happens, but the choice is mine with how I'm living right now. And how I'm treating myself mm. and others and what I'm building, what I'm trying to leave behind, how I'm affecting the the world in a way that I can leave some positive positive remnants when I leave, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least not make it worse. At least not make it worse. I mean, shit, that's just as valuable. It, yeah. Like, yeah, in this day and age, yeah. Yeah, right. To try and like balance the scale a little bit. I can't, I think it was David Suzuki who said, you know, if, if everybody lived on this planet right now, all seven or eight billion people, if everybody lived the same way that North Americans live, we would need four Earths worth of resources. Absolutely. So if there's any answer at all, it's in that direction of limitation. It's in that direction of the pursuit of wholeness, not goodness. And the pursuit of this will do versus the relentless pursuit of perfection and optimization. Right. Because the more, um, I mean, like think about what is growth when you look outside. Right. There's a few components. Growth is the removal of nutrients and of energy and of various other things from one place and then localizing it somewhere else. That's how everything grows. That's what eating is. Hmm. And so what is limitless, limitless growth then? Well, it's limitless eating. It's limitless consumption. Mm-hmm. What else does that in nature? Right. Um, cancer. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, like it's, this is like the least self-help thing, but limit yourself mm-hmm. and vo- and voluntarily if you can. Yeah. Because there's a, 
and, and some people already do this. Like when you think about people who try and quit smoking or try and quit porn or something like that, they're voluntarily limiting themselves. Yeah. It's yeah. You're oh, it's my personal right to smoke. Sure. Yeah. But you're limiting yourself and look at what happens. Yeah. This, these clear up. Absolutely. Your risk of cancer goes down. All because you limited yourself. That's astonishing to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Instead of this, like, I got to get it. I got to go. I got to, like William Wordsworth said back in the 18th century, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a balance to be had there, right? Because you're you're speaking to the issue of contentment in modern society, and and mm-hmm. we live in a growth oriented, achievement oriented society where it's like, well, uh, if I get my bachelor's, I want to get my master's, I want to get my PhD. If I if I you know yeah. I'm a high school athlete, I want to be a college athlete, and then a pro athlete. If I if I um yeah. you know run for local office, so I want to be a, a you know go to a national office and then, you know, work with like, you know, whatever we can look at it through anything. If I, if I have this yeah. YouTube channel and I'm following, you know, this person, well, I want to have more followers than them. I want to, I want to be at the top of the food chain kind of thing. Right. And I think there's a balance. And again, that's where consciousness comes in of like being content with where you are, uh, but also having a healthy strive just to be better. But a lot of times this, the, where our focus is to be better is the accumulation outside, which is consumption versus mm. building inside. Cause we can, we yeah. can build inside and not consume outside, you know? Yeah. And I because think building inside right. often results in a, a kind of undoing and a kind of letting yes. go of certain things. When you, when you work it, on this, yeah, it like dismantles things. Absolutely. You know, if you're doing it right, mm-hmm. I think. I think it's a sense of if we if we talk about the environmental sides of things, it's it's a conservation or preservation of the soul, right? Mm. Um, which is you know if you th- if you think about like you know any sort of environmentalist you know and and, and you know agree or nor disagree with tons of people, it's like you know are you a cultivator of your own soul or are you looking externally by consuming, 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 and buying and buying and buying to try to fill the holes in that soul versus sitting and doing it, you know, yourself or, or with mm. a partner with people that love you, mm-hmm. you know, cause I certainly looked outwardly to self-soothe in most of my adult life, you know, I'll oh, just buy more things, buy this, it make me happy. And of course having things are nice to do things you love, obviously, but at what cost, you know, what balance, because you're right. We have so much consumption in Western culture that when we look at, at, at sort of other places, we couldn't imagine living like that. But then here we're just like, well, I'm focused on these rights and those and this and that. I'm like, hey, maybe if we also look at other cultures that seem to be more happy or more connected, that have less monetary wealth or, you know, less, um, you know, uh, whatever, you know, personal rights or personal mm-hmm. freedoms, for instance, like maybe they're actually more free because they're not bound to the, service of pursuit of achievement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and you it's, know I'm, I'm i'm just getting so actually i'm just getting way tangible like way yeah, I'm yeah, not tangible yeah. here but you know i mean this it's important to wonder aloud about these things and and again for sure to as we started this conversation to acknowledge that like you know let's not pursue a right answer I know Absolutely. I said right a few day a few minutes ago and I, I regret that already. Yeah. It's living in that doubt and cultivating that doubt is like yeah. is like compost for your garden. It's yeah, and it's it's real tricky because like there should be stance, there should be pursuit of, in my opinion, like the inherent rights and freedoms of individuals when it comes to things like, you know, trans rights, um, LGBTQ rights. And like those rights, we're actively watching those rights in America just get gone. Never mind that. Never mind. Like um, there's talk of Miranda rights being revoked. There's talk of the sixth amendment rights being revoked anywhere near, if you're a hundred miles within a border, Border police can just walk in without a warrant, without anything. It's not your castle anymore. 
that mm-hmm. that shit needs to be protected. If you're going to have a civilization, that shit needs to be protected. It needs to be respected. And that, again, comes down to limits. Federal, federal needs to be limited in some way. State needs to be limited in some way. Individual and municipal need to be limited in some way so that they can interact in a more... I don't want to say effective, but in a more generative manner. Because if one aspect of that network from individual to municipal to state Uh to federal to global has the veto over all the others, then it it doesn't work. It's, there's a weird kind of like imbalance. And like, this is, this complicated political science stuff. And that's far beyond my ken. But it's all um, right. It's all wheels within wheels, mm-hmm. and so you can you can always start with yeah. you. You can always start with the individual unit, and then upon starting there, realize that you know your soul is that somehow disconnected from the ground, from air it's it's not it's not the idea that it is is a social convention a linguistic convention even in in english if you look at japanese or chinese for example uh their word for their their words don't have conjugation or plural in the same way um like for example in english what's the it in it is raining it is earth maybe yeah there's no it just abstract there's no it right there, there's just rain it's just there's just raining but because lang- because english works like that we have to have the subject and we have to have the object mm-hmm. we have to have the happening and the thing it's happening to but like in chinese when you have these um uh like graphic characters that used to be like pictographic. There's just this idea, like, is it raining? No, there's just raining. Or in Japanese, like, ame. Yeah. Is this is just a happening? The thing and the event are the same thing. So what's your soul? I mean, if you think about that hard enough, you come to the same conclusion Alan Watts did when he said, if I am my foot, I am the sun. Yep, yep. Which is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mind bender, that one. Yep. Because like, you know, if I cut off my hand, am I still me? Yes. If I cut off my head, am I still me? Yeah. I mean, yes, but I just can't perceive it anymore. Where, where do I end? Where does, my, where does my lap go when I stand up? Where does my fist go when I go like this? That same mechanic is the same mechanic as a soul. It's woven. Absolutely. Into yeah. the It's into interesting. The what you're explaining, Aaron, is pretty much what brought me back to spiritual practice is that recognizing that idea. Yeah, because I was atheist agnostic for about probably 10, 11 years, really? you know, my 20s. Um, maybe even longer than that because I think I stopped sort of practicing Catholicism when I was about... I want to say maybe 15, 16. Um, But, uh, and I think that really it it was about recognizing Mm. that the interwoven fabric of all life that I could comprehend, right? There's things that I will never comprehend um, universally and, and, and outside of that. But when I can comprehend based on earth and based on tangibility is spirit or this fabric or, or energy connects me to you to my fellow human beings it, it's what gives me empathy uh, to see someone hurt and feel bad for them to see someone committing a, an atrocious crime and want to stop them it's it's you know mm-hmm. the, these kind of things right and i think within that within and this is outside of i'm, I'm talking about in human form but it's, it's outside of sort of human it's 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 spirit right and and we can talk about however we want you know um but i do think that like within that is a, you know, science will never prove nor disprove that, right? And it's, and there is some sort of faith behind that, but it's less of a faith from a human con- construction, from a, from a human, like, uh, you know, made thing, and more of like, I can see yeah. it proliferate when, like, 
a child runs around and looks at a butterfly floating, you know, and is just like in awe of like another life form, you know, and, um, and there's so many ways this proliferates, but I do think it, it's you know, reconnecting with mm-hmm. a sense of my own spiritual practice, and I, it's a self-defined one. It doesn't adhere to any sort of thing, but there's a lot of stuff dr- drawn from other experiences in my life. May that be religion or you know other sort of uh, you know ways to connect with yourself and others. It is more of like just a a groundedness in being okay with the unknown, you know. And I think that's that's the main sort of goal of spirituality is to um, soothe our inability yeah. to comprehend the unimaginable. You know, and because a lot of people will just make conjectures again, going back to security. Well, I know God exists because yeah. they, he has to exist and he looks like this and he looks like this because I look like this. And, and then that, I feel safe, you know, and then, and then I'll be able to see everyone after <laughs> this whole thing is over. And I'm like, I, I stopped focusing on that. And yep. I'm just like, I do know that human beings and all life has the ability to like coexist in a way now not in a perfect way because i do think in our dna there there is you know set up to to have altercations and to have you know i'm not convinced that that war is completely able to be eradicated i do think that's you know if we look at animals you look at our culture but i think that as we evolve as a species mm-hmm. we are able to be a little bit more careful you know with what we're doing to ourselves and to each other yeah. And I think that, that that's a form of spiritual practice, honestly. It's awareness. It's awareness of yeah. of soul. It's awareness of other souls and the coexistence of these souls, you know, and the traumas and trials and tribulations and experiences that have created the individual and which which leads to the collective. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 funny to to think about how what happens to you as a person distinguishes you not in the sense of like elevating you like a distinguished, a distinguished Harvard professor or something, but I mean distinguished in the sense that it makes you distinct. It, it makes you, it makes you, it's the difference between a wave and still water is the distinguishing I'm talking about. Like, uh, there's a term in Kegon Buddhism, uh, a Japanese form of Buddhism called Jiji Muge, which means between thing event and thing event, no separation. So like there's there's no separateness, but there is distinctness. Because mm-hmm. I can like I can I can mm-hmm. see that you're Nico, and I can see that mm-hmm. I'm Aaron, and I can see that there are books behind me, but I know deep down. That un, that there's a substrate that connects us through consequence, through interactivity, through memory, through ancestry. Right. How did those books get there? Well, a lot of things happened. How did I get here? Even more things happened. I can't separate myself from them because if I did, I wouldn't exist. Those books wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be here. There's all these... I mean, it's hard to think about in English because uh, in, yeah. in 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 Japanese, it's just "diji muge." It's all sort of it 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 all is. It all has a a, a suchness to it. Um, and like, it, as the old Buddhist phrase goes, "tat dvam asi," that art thou. And if you if you look back at some of the early earlier myths um i'm thinking like indigenous myths um the ones that come to mind for me are uh from some of the people here the the kwakwakwa and they have myths where and creation stories where people fall onto the ground and turn into rivers and people cut their hair and it becomes fish and and all these things and like we treat those things as like oh that thing changed into this thing it was this and now it's this and that's not that like in that mindset in that Gigi Muge animistic old human sense the very very old human sense before civilization kind of got in the way and clergified things 
there was no separation. Like, of course that woman turned into a river. How couldn't you? And like, it's a strange way to think about things and you don't have to believe it. Absolutely. But it's something to wonder about. To think that your, your own personal traumas and my own personal traumas all led mm-hmm. and contributed to the discussion that we're having now and that we can't separate or excise them. Because it's just another way of saying I'm afraid, I'm like deeply afraid of any of the grief involved in that. I'm deeply afraid of things I can't metabolize or process or somehow turn into yet another advantage. What if it, like, it's fucking not sometimes. Yeah. Like, I got ADHD, man. It's not an advantage. And lots of things, biochemical, metabolic, cultural, all these things led to that being a thing that happens to me and in and around me because it affects my surroundings. It's hard for me to stay organized. So of course, like where's the separation there? For example, I, I don't, I don't treat it as like yet another thing to put on the checklist of I've turned this into a victory by somehow reframing it. No, it's a limitation and it's because it's a limitation and I treat it as such it actually helps me stay whole because if I'm constantly looking for more and I'm constantly looking to get away from myself and constantly looking to fulfill myself, then I'm just creating more holes because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like trying to fill a constantly growing house. Oh, I got another hundred square foot in the East wing. What are we going to do with that? Oh, I need to fill it with lamps and books. Cool. Okay. Oh, great. Shit. Another hundred square feet just opened up. The renovators won't stop. Mm-hmm. This is so expensive now. This is <laughs> this is the biggest house of all time. What do I do with it? How do I fill it? Well, you know, dem- fucking demolish the house, man. Mm-hmm. Cut it down. Sell a lot and give it to somebody mm-hmm. else. Then you'll have a you'll have a full I house. I love it, dude. Um, a I have to have you back house. on, Aaron, because I I think that this has been you know one of the first times I've been able to just riff because we didn't come into this conversation with having something to focus on. And I had a feeling we're going to get into this because it's how you think, you know, and this is, this is the, this is the whole, you know, we can can dive into with certain people. Um, But I want to just say, you know, I appreciate your time so much, dude. You know, I I think that there's just, there's so much depth in this conversation. I hope people out there, you know, um, just gain something from it. And if it, you know, if it scares you or you, or you feel like, what are these dudes talking about? I hope you, you know, just listen to it with an open mind and, and engage with it as you will, or if you may. Um, but yeah, dude, thank you for coming on, man. And it's, it's wonderful to see you again. I'm glad you're doing well and I uh, can't wait to, to meet you in person eventually. Vice versa, my friend, you honor me with your time. I really want to ask all of you listeners out there, if you could take a couple seconds, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star written review that really helps get the podcast in more eyes, in more ears, um, and just really helps podcasts grow in in every aspect possible. So um, I would really appreciate it if you could pause it, go leave us a five-star written review on Apple, subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts, and turn notifications on so you get notified whenever we launch a new episode.